Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Shocky and Awe edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast. Here, as always, with my friends Tamara Kaufman. Hello, Tamara. Hello, Shane. My friend Ben Wittes. Hello, Ben. Hey. Uh, and we're going to do something a little different this week. Uh, our object lesson segment is going to go first. And I'm going to kick off by asking Ben, what is your object this week? My object this week is Corey Shockey. <gasps> Look, it's Corey Shockey. Hi, Corey Shockey. Hello, my friends. Hello. So Corey Shockey is uh, a great friend of all witnesses and a, uh, uh, a fabulous senior fellow at the Hoover Institution uh, in, in, at Stanford and all-around amazing defense policy analyst and uh, foreign policy person. You've probably read her on Foreign Policy Magazine, and she's in town, and so I caught her in a net and dra- dragged her to be my object lesson on, 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 on rational security today. Do you feel objectified? What woman doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're very glad you're here. It is a pleasure to it's be with you guys. I'm a fan of the podcast, and so I'm happy to be in the conversation. Good, good. And it's, you know, it's not every day that you get to be on a podcast hosted by an Iranian agent. Exactly That's right. right. That's right. Yes, and as our listeners know, I'm in my, my second week now, I think, as a new recruit for the Islamic Republic. I have to say, the fact that you are openly admitting it actually is the perfect cover for being a yeah. genuine Iranian. Right? It really is. I have nothing to hide. <laughs> it's all out there. It's all out there. I haven't heard from my handlers, though, in the past few weeks. Maybe they've run tired. That's a surprise. Yeah, right. <laughs> Maybe it's because they can read everything you're doing online. <laughs> Apparently they do read the Daily Beast now. <laughs> oh, God. Well, given that the Onion is frequently mistaken by Fars to be actual Yeah, news, right. Yeah. I feel like you're in great company. I yeah. think so. I'm, I'm proud, proud to be among them. Uh, okay, this week on the show was the shooting of nine people in Charleston, South Carolina, an act of terrorism. Chinese spies now know the secret sex lives of U.S. government employees, and the United Nations has a new report on Gaza, plus more in our object lessons segment at the end of the show. Um, okay, so we're going to start with wordplay. I'm going to go first, actually, my wordplay this week is domestic terrorism, uh, and the question of whether or not that should be how we describe uh, the shooting at the Emanuel AME Church uh, uh, as an act of domestic terrorism, or was it a hate crime, was it something else? Um, interestingly, uh, FBI Director Jim Comey sort of stumbled with this uh, a little bit in the beginning of the week where he came out, sorry, last week actually came out and said that he thought that it was not an act of terrorism because acts of terrorism generally have political motivations, uh, and that he said that he didn't see any evidence of that. Now, this was a day before... Was, right. Yeah, trying to generate a race war is not a political well, motive. in his defense, this was the day before we, we led this manifesto came out, and, that, and so actually, well, I wrote a story about this where I called the White House, and I said, hey, what do you think of Jim Comey's remarks? And they said, 
Well, we would refer you to what the Justice Department said about this, which was what, that we are still investigating uh -huh. as possible action investigators. Then the FBI kind of backpedaled and said, well, you know, he said these things before we knew about the race war and the manifesto. Because we've never had to think about the subject of terrorism right. inside America right. before this, now. Exactly. So this kind of like hit me, too. It was like, well, like, well, it, it was, I mean, Jim's a very thoughtful person. director. He's a very thoughtful guy. And I was like, why, why even come out and give an opinion on something when the event itself was like three days old at that point, and you know, you kind of know you're going to be stepping into a lot of emotional uh, landmines there. But I mean, frankly, I will say, I mean, I also was sort of prompted by this going back and reading I mean, the statutory definition of domestic terrorism, mm -hmm. um, which some lawyers were trying to tell me is not the same thing as the, the FBI's statute. definition. Yeah, but I mean, if you look at the, the, the statutory definition of it, like it plainly fits what happened here. Yeah. Right. So, so there's. There's multiple statutory definitions at issue, and this is, I think, what tripped up uh, the director. So, first of all, there's the colloquial question, is it terrorism mm -hmm. if, in an effort to inspire a race war, you walk into a church and shoot nine people? Uh, and the answer to that is, duh, yeah. right? Um, the second question is, does it fit the statutory definition of domestic terrorism, which it seems to fit quite comfortably. But the third question, and I think one that Comey was prob probably had in the back of his mind, and I, I, for the record, haven't talked to him about this, don't know, but I think what he probably had in the back of his mind when he made those remarks, which were certainly uh, inartful, is the statutory definition of the specific terrorism offenses that the government would prosecute people for. But that wasn't which the it, question he was being asked. Well, it's, being, it's, I mean, and why did he feel pressure to address this? Because there was a huge national conversation, which I frankly found bizarre because it is obviously an act of domestic terrorism. Um, so, so be careful, though. If you're the FBI, when you investigate something, you investigate something under a particular statute, right? You have to have, you, you have to be looking as to whether the event violates the particular law you're investigating under. And the, the, the specific terrorism crimes do tend to involve one of two things that were not involved here. One is either an attack on some specific federally protected facility, a, a federal building, you know, transportation infrastructure, that sort of thing. Or secondly, a bomb. And so I think, you know, had, had Comey and, and actually, Jane Chong on Lawfare laid this out uh, very carefully, sort of what the, you know, what the components of the federal terrorism statutes are in practice. And I do think there's a sort of dichotomy in federal law that probably tripped the director up. I, I have no doubt that's true. It seems to me it would not have been... And maybe this is the challenge for the FBI in, in such fraught circumstances as to sort of lift its head up above the weeds enough to say, it fits the statutory definition of domestic terrorism, but we're still investigating it as a criminal matter. Like, how hard is that? But, I, but what I find really interesting about this is that Comey's uh, ambiguous reflection on this fell into a context where different interest groups and different parts of American society are using the question of whether to label it terrorism in a political manner. In other words, 
well, if it's a hate crime, it's in one category, and we can sort of wall it off that way, you know. But if it's domestic terrorism, oh, then that that uh, hits our alarm bell, and we have to mobilize in a much broader way as a society against that. And I also find it anachronistic because in the 1990s, after Oklahoma City, there we had a very different societal judgment about, you know, race-based violence in our society that rose to the level of terrorism. If this crime had happened in the wake of Oklahoma City, no one would have questioned whether it was domestic right. terrorism. But now we've been so fixated on Al-Qaeda that if it's not Islamist, it's not terrorism somehow. Well, so a, cu- a, a couple things. One is, you know, the federal government is actually rather consistent in its ambiguity on this. So Nidal Hassan, who shot up Fort Hood, also used a firearm and was also, you know, sort of politically motivated but not linked to some foreign... And, you know, the government famously called it workplace violence and didn't call it terrorism, much to the anger of a lot of conservatives. Even though we droned the guy who inspired <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and so... Because inspiring workplace violence is a serious matter. So I, thought, so, I, so I think there really is a... Um, um, there, there, there's a, there's a sort of consistency in the, in the, in the government's weirdness on this subject. But secondly, there's also a ambiguity in the way the left and the civil rights community talks about these things. In the 90s, the reason we have hate crimes laws is that they went on this kind of political campaign that it wasn't enough to charge crimes like this as murders. We needed this heightened uh, category of racially motivated crime to kind of identify the sort of damage that it does to a larger community, not just to the specific victims. So the reason we have hate crimes laws is to create these sentencing enhancements for these types of offense as a special category of crime. But then 9-11 happens and terrorism becomes the even more heightened category of crime. And now it's sort of not good enough to call something a hate crime. You have to, you know, to give it that sort of special cachet as sort of the worst thing in the world, with, you know, this offense is one of the worst things in the world. It's got to be terrorism. And I just think there's a sort of weird terrorism, hate crimes, sort of linguistic one-upsmanship going on. That's true. Corey, one thing I'd love to ask you, I mean, you, you've been in the position of advising candidates Know, who are running for office, and we're in the middle of you know a very crowded early stage of a presidential campaign, and of course all the candidates are going to have to respond to this. Like, when, 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 what are the, the factors that you know people who are running for office take into account in a moment like this? Because there's the there's the rational security side of it, which is to look at as Ben sort of laying out, you know, what does the law say? What is the statute going to require? What is the process going to be? And then obviously the need to you know emotionally respond to something that has been you know, just so painful and, and huge in the, in the public dialogue. So if I were advising a political candidate, yeah. I would argue the first thing they should do is flip the two okay. factors yeah. you said, right? Because they're not the FBI. They're not going to be bound by what needs to be prosecutable in this space. What they are going to be bound by is, are you responding in a way that's actually cons- um, considerate? of victims and their families in a way that makes you look um, bigger than the tragedy by putting it in context for people. 
because um, I think that's what good politicians do. They give us a sense of the meaning of what's occurring. So it does seem like, in general, most of the candidates have responded fairly well. I mean, nobody has stepped in it in a big way and sort of, you know, humiliated themselves in this, I don't think. Or is anybody said anything really I well? find that astonishing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the mo- odds mo- are in favor most of, of someone. Although, although there are like 50 the con- of them running, so I'm not, don't quote me on <laughs> most that. Most of the really stupid comments have been about the Confederate flag, not yeah. about the... Yeah, and Lindsey Graham did sort of like go on the side of like, oh, he's just some whack job and didn't quite go with like, like yeah, yeah, it's not Actually, just that he's a whack Lindsey job. Actually, Lindsey Graham was quoted on a point that gets to exactly what we're talking about is terrorism now identified in public mind with Islamism, yes. where, when he said, you know, this is Mideast-style hate. I didn't know we had that in this country. Like, hello, where have you been? Uh, Welcome to America. Uh, right, and, and, you know, like one, one thing about the history of terrorism in America that 9-11 has caused us to forget is that most of it, over a long period of time, has been directed at black people. Right. And, you know, the original American terrorism or terrorist organization was the KKK. Yes. And, right, yeah, mm-hmm. and it, um, it conducted very significant terrorist operations over a long period of time directed for purposes of intimidation and political control at a political community right. in the United States. And, you know, it's, it's a pretty traditional terrorist organization in that sense. Yeah, and I just and I'll just to wrap it up. It is somebody. I was born in Oregon. I've lived most of my life in the South, and I include Washington D.C. in that because um, it is a well, southern the city. Right. I mean, it was really you saw. I mean, it, it was it was for me personally. This was extremely you know painful watching this event, and it just reminds you of exactly as Ben's saying. I mean, the sort of the the pervasiveness of of terror really that people have lived with, but to then see the just the rapid fire nature in which the Confederate flag started coming down in various states was astonishing. I I never thought I would see that in my lifetime. It is just yeah, and good riddance, frankly. Yeah. And in a very small way, a beautiful recompense for the wreckage yeah. that this politically motivated yes. horror results in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like, big time. The terrorists yeah. did not win. Um, okay, uh, let's move on to your play, Tamara. Well, my wordplay is uh, an article by an esteemed national security correspondent named Shane Harris. I think you mean the Iranian agent. <laughs> oh, right. An esteemed Iranian agent. Crypto-Iranian <laughs> agent. Right, it's all of my various titles. Um, <laughs> but you had a great piece uh, last night, breaking a new piece of this story about the Office of Personnel Management's um, being hacked and personnel data for up to 18 million people having been stolen, presumably Ugh. including myself, although I have yet to have been notified by OPM. And plenty of people, by the way, have not been notified. Yeah. Know. Well, and apparently that's because of a single-source contractor who's responsible <laughs> for notifying yes. everyone. Who is probably based overseas. Yes. <laughs> no, I think there was somebody in China working for him. I'm not making that up. It wouldn't surprise me. But, um, so, you know, Shane, your story breaks the news that uh, the hackers got even more data than right. we realized, including all of the sort of stuff that investigators checking people for security clearances would have uncovered in the course of their investigation. Right. Alcoholism, drug abuse, divorces, things that are great for blackmail. Um, but what really strikes me about your story and all of the stories since this broke is that it's just this drip 
drip, drip of scandal. It's getting worse and worse the more we know. Every story reveals an additional layer of this hack. And, you know, I think anyone who's worked in PR knows that you want to just get all the dirt out on rip the table first. Rip off the first. Band-Aid. Yeah, yeah, rip off the Band-Aid, and this is exactly the opposite. But also, what is OPM doing not being forthright about the extent of this? So all of this leads me to ask, you know, at first, I really, I thought people were hyperventilating about this, but the more stories I read, including yours last night, makes me wonder, is this really the worst cyber attack in American history? It's something like, what, 5 6% of the American population who are affected. It's astonishing. <laughs> it's an astonishing number. And, uh, you know, I... I'm tomorrow I'm with you on this. I mean, I, I, the more you learn about it, the worse it gets. We found out yesterday from a really interesting story in the Wall Street Journal that apparently someone in the administration made the decision to portray the hack as if it were two separate breaches, that there was one that happened first that affected Social Security numbers and what's called personally identifying information, and that a second breach affected the background information and what's known as the adjudication data, which is what I wrote about. And it turns out that actually they're the same event but for some reason, they chose to re- re- break them out separately. And they justified this by saying, like, well, we were revealing it as the investigation proceeded. But now, of course, what you have is it looks like there's some clumsy behind-the-scenes effort to try and spin it oh, and minimize Benghazi it. Oh, those Benghazi-style talking <laughs> right. points. Right, right, right. Always get <laughs> so, you. So I want to raise a different issue related to the OPM hack, which is whose fault is it? Mm-hmm. Because if you think about it for a minute, it is completely implausible that OPM would have the ability to manage per- personnel systems of that size in a fashion that is uh, resistant to a serious foreign intelligence adversary. Their business is not counterintelligence. Um, we have an agency whose job it is to do counterintelligence, the FBI, and we have an agency whose job it is to do cybersecurity, NSA. And my question is, do we have a tasking problem if nobody ever said to these agencies, hey, we've got this database of, you know, 18, 20 million people with high counterintelligence value, high intelligence value, um, whose job was it to figure out that this was going likely to be a target and to go to OPM and say, uh, dudes, uh, sorry, you're, you can't protect this. We need to protect this. And I think there's a, there's a really interesting interagency question about how you think about highly sensitive material in the hands of agencies that are not designed or set up to do, you know, FCI. I think that's. I think it's a great question. I mean, to me, and this gets to the, gets to the issue of culpability. And are we, you know, just going through a classic scapegoating scenario now Total with the director game. of the uh, director of OPM? Yeah, you put the director of OPM, who is not acquitting herself well in testimony. <laughs> She's doing a terrible job. <laughs> but but that's not her job. Right. I mean, it's the job of OPM is to. It's frankly not even to conduct background investigations. Let's be honest. It's to oversee contractors who conduct background investigations. And then this information and securing it, we have known for more than a decade that, generally speaking, civilian agencies in the government have poor, moderately bad to poor cybersecurity compared to other agencies in the intelligence community and the Defense Department. 
I think ultimately, and I'm doing some more reporting on this, you're going to find a lot of this actually leads back to the doorstep of the Director of National Intelligence. Well, so I think that's a really interesting, but, but, I, but I was thinking, like, what are the other really high-impact government databases that are totally outside the classified sector and that a foreign intelligence agency would just find a completely target-rich environment. And I'm thinking of NIH, mm-hmm. where, you know, FDA, where they have, you know, huge amounts of, of, of medical information about people. Uh, we know that the Chinese like medical information because they went after, you know, Anthem and, um, so, whose job it is, is it to go to these non-security agencies and say, look, your systems suck, and you're not in a position to defend them. We need to defend them. If only we had something like a National Security Council, people <laughs> whose job it really is big. to integrate across the agencies and make sure nothing falls through the cracks. Yeah. Says a former National Security <laughs> Council staffer. Right? But there's also, I mean, there's also a civil liberties issue. Right. When you apply for a government job, they compel you to reveal all of this information to the FBI. Yes. And you have no choice, yes. and yet there's evidently no corresponding accountability on the other side. Amen. I mean, can I, and I just want to, because a lot of our listeners, frankly, have security clearances probably. And I just want to just like shout out to them. Like, these are people who do thankless jobs, who have to divulge extraordinary details about their personal life, their financial life. And the implicit deal in doing that should be, on the other side, that we are going to do everything within our power to make sure that your information is protected. And that utterly failed in this regard. Can I ask you, folks who have more legal expertise than I do, whether there isn't some kind of separation, well, not separation of powers, but whether there isn't some kind of issue in asking, say, the NSA to pay attention to these domestic agencies that have no national security role I mean, the FBI's CI authority definitely extends to this domain, but they're also tiny and underfunded with respect to the scope of this challenge. Um, but is there an authorities question at all in implementing the idea, Ben, that you were putting forward? Is it so obvious that they should have been doing this, or did somebody have to tell them, you have the authority to do this? So it's not a separation of powers issue. No, no, it, I it, know it's, it's, it, But it is a you know, NSA doesn't operate domestically issue. And, um, you know, now... But they do for protecting databases. Right. So, so one of the NSA functions, uh, it has its foreign intel function, but it also has what's called an information assurance function yep. for which, you know, its job is to protect government communications. Um, and so, I mean, I think part of the question of what counts as information assurance is a is a definitional question, um, and some of it is um, you know a jurisdictional question, as you suggest. I do think they do generally have the authority to give help to other um, agencies. They help. They give technical help to DHS and to the bureau on a fairly regular basis. Um, look, NSA may not be the right agency to do it. It may be the kind of thing that you have to stand up some, you know, civilian side information assurance apparatus in order to do. 
Um, but what seems to me totally implausible is the idea that OPM is going to defend its own data against right. the Chinese. And the connection, I think, between Tamara's question and your earlier point about tasking is, what the hell is the OPM doing with this data? Right. Mm -hmm. The FBI collects the data. Why wasn't the FBI protecting the data and OPM having tasking authority to say, is this person okay? Is this person okay? Do we have anything to worry about? Why is OPM even in possession of the information when they obviously don't have the ability to protect it and, and they don't have the, the mindset of a domestic intelligence agency in the way the FBI does? Of course they're not going to protect the data. Right, That's right. not who they are. And, and so on this too, man, I hinted a little bit about this with my comment on the DNI earlier. There's been a process going on to start migrating a lot of this clearance information into a database that is maintained by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. I, for I think exactly the reasons you're saying, Corey, is that you know why the hell should the OPM be in the business? This is national security sensitive information, and intelligence agencies should be handling it. Which I think goes back to your question at the beginning, Ben. It's that yes, I mean like other agencies need to <clears throat> publicly account for what they were or won't do, weren't doing. I think the National Security Council should make some kind of a statement as to why weren't we coordinating this. P.S. I mean, how many hearings over how many years have we had about poor information security in the federal government and everyone bangs their fists and says, this is unacceptable, it poses a great risk to national security. And then, you know, Target gets owned and Home Depot gets owned. Well, guess what, OPM, you're next. And it's no different. And it's, just, it's, just, it's astonishing to me how we knew this was going to happen. We knew this would happen, and that it would be really, really bad when it did. And it's basically as bad as bad can be. Yeah, so The Onion had a fantastic article about a year ago about how every potential 2050, 2040 candidate for president has already been ruled out on the basis of their Facebook posts. <laughs> maybe, maybe the only, so my grand theory of American strategy is that no society can sustain a strategy fundamentally inconsistent with what it is as a political culture. And so very often people who would like to see us capable of whole of government operations, of seamless integration of abilities, forget that we're a government put together by people who distrust government. Right. <laughs> and so, so maybe our strategy ought to just be we we all need to live completely open lives because yeah, that is your on only Facebook. that is your only safety. <laughs> yeah, the these millennials are onto something. Yeah, <laughs> or the onion is. Or the onion is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, okay, Ben, let's go on to uh, your wordplay. So my wordplay is a uh, long report issued uh, at after some time by the UN. Uh, uh, the, the UN Human Rights Council's special investigator uh, for the Gaza War. Um, and this has been a long saga. The original uh, special, uh, special investigator uh, had to resign uh, after he was uh, found to have uh, you know, been a consultant for the Palestinian Authority. Um, and the Israelis have been boycotting any participation with this special commission since the beginning. Uh, and the report came out and was uh, at least somewhat more uh, 
serious than people expected it to be. Um, it was uh, found serious reason to believe that there had been uh, war crimes by both Palestinian armed groups and by the Israeli military. Um, the document, which I've spent the last couple days uh, reading more of than I wanted to, honestly, is uh, nonetheless pretty bad. And um, I think pretty bad for, among other things, for U.S. service people who have to make hard targeting decisions in urban settings for the following reason. So the Israelis did not participate in this investigation. And in order to figure out whether a given attack in which civilians die is a war crime, you really need to know what the commander in the field knew, what intelligence he saw, what uh, what the factors that went into his decision were. And because the Israelis did not participate in this investigation, the Special Commission had no information about what the people who conducted any of the airstrikes they studied were thinking. And they nonetheless evaluated each and every one of them on the prima facie theory that, you know, civilians died, big bombs were used, therefore this is a war crime, or therefore it may very well be a war crime. And it's, you know, potentially going to go to the ICC on that basis. Um, and I think if you think about that from the point of view of, you know, U.S. Uh, overseas operations where we... A, conduct operations, and B, don't necessarily want to tell some UN commission what the specific intelligence was on which that strike was conducted. That's actually a pretty dangerous precedent. Um, and so I, I think this report has, has really tended to play in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict space where people who like Israel are angry about it and people who, you know, are sympathetic to the Palestinians, feel vindicated by it. But if I were a JAG in the U.S. military, I would be anxious about it because it seems to me that the logic of it has a lot of implications for uh, a lot of drone strikes, a lot of airstrikes, and a lot of ground uh, activity that has, you know, predictable collateral damage um, but may be entirely justified uh, given what the commanders in question know at any given time. Um, so as usual, that is thoughtful and judicious. My reaction was we would never participate in a UN investigation into war crimes of American military operations. Have we ever? Um, I don't believe so. And in fact, there was a, so there was a, uh, special rapporteur that looked at drones, um, and we did not engage in a serious way with that. Um, now the difference is that he turned out to be a pretty serious guy and didn't do what this commission did, which is to take a list of drone strikes and say, okay, well, you didn't give us any information, therefore we're going to conclude yeah. they all may be war crimes. Um, and so I think the risk for the United States is lower than the risk for Israel um, mm -hmm. because it doesn't start with 
you know, a human rights council that's really devoted to, you know, yeah, no, the precedent is an alarming one, and I take it seriously. I think you have just made one of the best possible cases I have ever heard for why we're not part of the International Criminal Court. <laughs> um. Right, although the interesting thing about this exercise is that it reveals even if you reject um, membership in the ICC, you can still become subject to these processes and, you know, the, the U.S. stance relative to this report, this Gaza report that was just issued, is very much in line with Israel's to sort of reject the validity of the report, um, given the circumstances under which it was written and the obvious biases in the Human Rights Council that generated it. Um, and that's part of America's international support for Israel, but it's also very self-interested for all the reasons that you're explaining. But I think that there, there are two implications of this. One is that whether the U.S. rejects the legitimacy of these investigations or not, it looks like we, we also will probably get caught up in them in the future. And number two, it, I, I wonder if part of the precedential effect here is that it starts to establish an idea that's, um, that's very pernicious, um, that the acceptable level of civilian casualties in war fighting is zero. Right. Yes, that's a great point. Tim. Well, and, 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 and that the assumption when you have non-zero civilian casualties is that something wrong took place rather than that you're in the land of, you know, lawful collateral damage, which, you know, unfortunately does happen in war. I do think there's another, you hit upon like a really important nuance in the U.S. reaction to this, which is people will always see the U.S. reaction to a report like this as part of its generic pro-Israel stance. But I, I actually, you know, I have no sympathy for general Israeli policy toward Palestine, toward the Palestinians. And, you know, it's, this strikes me as a different set of questions. This is a set of questions about what the lawful activities are in the conduct of military operations. And the IDF is, like the U.S. military, one of the few militaries that actually conducts regular combat operations that vets them legally really carefully. And so I think there's a, there is a real risk from a U.S. perspective that if you delegitimize the way the IDF conducts combat operations, that has, that has real blowback implications for our forces. Moreover, it creates a moral equivalence between the death of civilians in the conduct of operations and the willful putting of civilians in harm's way, like, for example, uh, missiles on the roof of apartment buildings. Not right. to mention the deliberate targeting of civilians by Absolutely. Hamas, which, you know, yeah. they are a terrorist organization. That's what they do. And not to get too philosophical on this, but, you know, we, we want war fighting to be seen as a bad thing, a thing to be avoided at all costs. If these human rights groups and, and agencies set up the, the ideal of a clean cost, you know, from a human perspective, cost-free war, isn't that subversive of the idea of war as something awful that we should avoid? And it disconnects it from the political motivations that are, that generate the violence. 
Wasn't it General Sherman who I said, "It is well that. that war is so terrible, lest we become too fond of it"? Precisely. Both Lee and Wellington. Okay, so we're going to move on to object lesson. I'm going to go first because mine's not that serious. Um, we've already done your object lesson, Ben. I have. Yeah, <laughs> and um, mine actually um, is a piggy bank, which I have been coveting for many years, and I coveting? finally found. Yes, coveting. Piggy bank, bank secure, whatever. I just want to share my new piggy bank. <laughs> It's, actually, it's that OPM connection. <laughs> it's, uh, exactly. Look, it's a sh- It's a bank in the form of a pig. That's actually what it's called. Wow. Bank in the form of a pig. Um, it is cast from a dead pig. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes, by an artist named Harry Allen, uh, who created this for a company called AreaWare. And it's the I got the I think mine's called like navy chrome. The one that I really wanted was like this shocking bright blue that I've not been able to find anywhere. And if I see it, I will have two. I will get another one. I will get it. But they come in like these neon colors and they are like little pigs. Look, he's so cute. Okay, but you're going to have to explain the appeal. I I just, I like the color. I think I just like really like bright. I'm with Shane. Shiny objects. You like the true to life, dead The true to life. I mean, I just think it's it's the neatest little thing and it's just sort of. It's a pig. Umbilical cord cork there in its stomach. No, that's well, that's yeah. A little, it's a little gruesome. I I'm, gotta I'm, say, I'm with Shane. It's awesome. I love it. I just love this little guy. And like I said, I was like getting exactly the color that I wanted. This but is if why I see another one, I'm gonna I'm gonna collect the rainbow of these pigs. This is why we have object lessons in this to share things like that. Yeah, I just love him. He's just so great. Anyway, I'm gonna name him. Oh my. Oh All right. my. Tomorrow, what's your object? All right. Well, my object is. Far less interesting than that, but uh, but perhaps more controversial, which is Michael Oren's new book out yesterday. Uh, for those of you who've been living under a Wait, rock, Ally. Oh, Ally. Ally. Sorry, Ally. Kidding. Uh, <laughs> Michael Oren was the uh, ambassador of Israel to the United States during the first Obama term and during Netanyahu, Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu's. Uh, second and part of his third terms as prime minister. He's now just entered his fourth. Um, And this book has proven explosive even before its official pub date um, because Oren launched it with a couple of op-eds that have really shocked, uh, respectively, the Obama administration and the American Jewish community. The first op-ed in the Wall Street Journal um, accused Obama of uh, betraying Israel. Um, and argued that Obama deliberately uh, broke two cardinal rules of the U.S.-Israel relations, no daylight between the two allies and no surprises. A lot of historians and experts on the relationship question whether those two rules have ever been followed in the history of this relationship. Or whether they're even rules at all. (laughs) Yeah, right. They both seem wrong to me. Yeah. Um, Nonetheless, it was uh, a pretty explosive op-ed. And then the second one in foreign policy... Uh, argued that, among other things, um, American journalists writing about Israel are hostile in part because a lot of them are Jews and they're feeling guilty because Israel doesn't live up to their naive liberal vision of what Jews should be. And so I think it's um, fascinating that uh, this guy who was a diplomat um, (laughs) uh, and who says that he wrote this book in order to restore the U.S.-Israel relationship and mobilize the American Jewish community behind his um, his views on that relationship 
seems to have alienated the two constituencies <laughs> necessary to achieve his goals. So uh, more on this book after I've actually read it. I just want to make one observation about uh, blaming American Jewish journalists, which is if a non-Jew had written a book saying that the reason uh, American, you know, Right. Blaming the ethnicity of journalists for the substance of coverage, we have a word for that in the English <laughs> language, and it's uh, it, it's a word that starts with A and ends with M. Yes, and I think Michael Arn might have been one of the first to make that point. Had someone else written that, so I'm going to claim the last word. Okay, which is um, as you were talking tomorrow, I was thinking of Ronald Reagan famously saying the eleventh commandment of politics is "Thou shalt not speak ill of any other Republican." <laughs> and so the person who's broken the long-standing rule here is Michael. Oren. And the last thing is, it does take us full circle back to beginning with Shane, our Iranian intelligence operative, because maybe Michael Oren is an Iranian operative because <gasps> he's actually doing Iran's work for them. That must be it, Corey, you're a genius. I bet my friends have reached out to him. <laughs> <laughs> Invited him to that conference in Tehran. Sure. He's promoting a book. Why not? probably go. You know, why not? I'll pay for the ticket. <laughs> that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks for listening. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to all of our other shows at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Uh, whenever you download the podcast, remember to leave a ratings and comment. It's a great way to let other people know about the show. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. The podcast editor is Jen Howell. Our music is performed this week by the Shocky Roddle and Rollers. <laughs> no. nah, yeah, like that. that could be your band. <laughs> it could totally be your band. Awesome. <laughs> no, our music is performed, as always, by Sophia Yan. On behalf of Ben Wittes and Mark Offen Wittes and our special guest, Corey Shockey, thank you for being here. I'm Shane Harris, and we will talk to you next week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.